Hello. Hi. Uh, Happy uh, New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. New Year, new us, new podcast. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. (laughs) It's a new podcast, which is going to be pretty much the exact same podcast that it's always been. So That it was before. We're just going to talk about a lot of weird things, stuff that Scotty and I are obsessed with, which continues to be yellow jackets. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that before (sighs) we move too much further. But before we do that, um, I'm Scotty Milder. Right. I'm Amelia Ampuero. This is the Weirdest Thing podcast, where we talk about whatever weird shit is in our minds at the moment. And yeah, I think the thing that is in our minds right now really is last night's episode of Yellow Jackets. Fully on uh, last night was the penultimate mm-hmm. episode of season one. And yeah, we're, we're, I think we're ramping up for a really crazy season finale. Yeah. I mean, like, like we were saying last night, this show has had like sporadic, like it's a batshit premise for a show, but it's sort of like done in a very pretty grounded way, mostly. Yeah. But there'll be these like sporadically batshit things that happen. And then last night was just like all batshit things. Like it was just, it was like, they were like saving it for the end. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like three minutes into the show and Scotty and I are just like, we had to actually pause it. Yeah, we paused it and like <laughs> stared at each other wide eyed for about 10 seconds without speaking. <laughs> and then just and then started it up again. <laughs> just started it back up again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I'm really excited. I need more people to watch it. Like, I need more people to have theories and yeah. the mix. Yeah. It seems like in our world, like, I don't really know anyone else who's watching it or who has like been as public as we are stands well, about it. I think it's an interesting thing because a lot of people, because uh, it's a Showtime show, mm-hmm. so you know you have to figure out how to how to get access to Showtime. And I I know that we have at least one listener who is like, okay, I'm I just am gonna have to wait until mm-hmm. like you know the full season is out and then just do my. It. Like, during the free preview week yeah. right um, yeah so hopefully all you guys do that because i do i i need to talk to more people about this show like it's, yes it really is i like all the batshitness aside it's just an incredibly well done show and i mean i think if you're gonna go batshit i think this is you know a really good way to do it yeah. um i mean granted the full first season isn't even out yet so I mean, they could absolutely go off the rails, but it seems like everything so far is like super intentional and that there is, it doesn't seem like lost. It really felt like lost was like, Hey, here's a super cool premise with all of this, these weird mysteries. And then they were like, wait, what did we do with the, Oh, right. (laughs) Oh, well it's fine. We'll just like, yeah. I mean, Lost, they were clearly making that show up as they went along. I mean, I think they even kind of said that in interviews. So it's like, yeah, Um, that was that was a hard show to like stick with because it was just like there's there's no master plan. Yeah, I had a I had a couple of friends who got mad at me because look, here's here's the truth. The truth is, is that I am I am a world class first class quitter. I will quit. (laughs) 
anything you really are yeah that that is actually i can confirm that (laughs) and like feel no guilt about it and just like walk away from it and be like i'm done Mm. so i had a lot of uh i had a couple of friends who were very upset with me that i had made it as far into lost as i did and i was just like yeah i'm done i'm Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not as bad as what I did with The Shield, where one of my best friends had been bugging me to watch that show forever because it's his favorite show. And I watched all eight seasons up until like the last three episodes and then Mm -hmm. quit. And then he's been like, that was like 10 years ago and he's still mad about it. And at this point, I'm just not watching it just to spite him. Right. That's the type of person I am. I just, why like stick with something that doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's plenty of stuff that draws me in from the word go. I can't tell you how many books I've bought just to be like, oh no, I'm, I read the first page and I'm done. No, my, my rule with books is like, I give it 25%. If I'm looking at my little Kindle screen, cause I read most things on the Kindle. Right. Like I look at the little like percentage completed thing at the bottom. And if I get to 25% and I'm not into it, then I quit. Then yeah, just be done with it. And just yeah. like the sunk cost, right? you know, thing is like, just, and, and that's it, how it's I, like, that's a construct. Yeah. And that's how I was with lost and with um like the walking dead where I got basically two seasons into both and was like, all right, I think I'm done. I mean, the thing with the shield was ridiculous because I literally had three episodes left. Right. Like I yeah. really don't have a good reason for not having finished it because I was actually super into the show. I just I just quit think- and then and then enjoyed his anger more than I enjoyed the show. So yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess we should get into it, I guess. Yeah. I think Scotty and I have some some roaring 20s stories yeah. to tell yeah. you. Yeah, I think the plan was, since this is 2022, we're going to mm-hmm. go back 100 years to yeah. 1922. <laughs> yeah, I will say, too, that I was really hoping, you know, in the years, uh, I guess, leading up to, I mean, I guess I should say, like, pre-2020, right? That I was, like, mm-hmm. really hoping for a, a resurgence of the roaring 20s. Yeah. Um, and I think what we've gotten is that it is the roaring 20s. It's just a silent, it's a closed mouth scream. Like roar of anguish. (laughs) Right. Into the (laughs) void as opposed to like, woo. I mean, I still have hope for Roaring Twenties just because like the 19, whatever, whatever whatever it was, 1918 pandemic. I think it took like two, three years to end. So I think the (sighs) Roaring Twenties really got going in like 1923, probably. So we've got another year to get through this shit, guys. And then it's over. Listen, I just need everybody to get their shit together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired of this. Um, yeah. And I'm tired of all of you. <laughs> all right. Well, okay. on, on that note, let's <laughs> dive right in. <laughs> 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 I'm quitting the audience for yeah. this podcast. It's not, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, I think you guys are all awesome. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in to all of our craziness. Okay. So century stories, roaring twenties. Mm -hmm. take you back. Of course, I'm going to start the year off with a cold open. Awesome. In the early morning hours of February 2nd, 1922, a scream rang out at the Alvarado Court Apartments in Los Angeles. 
Mm-hmm. The victim, a well-liked, well-known, and well-respected director, was found dead lying oh. on the floor in his apartment. A I century later, going. his murder remains unsolved <laughs> and is considered one of Hollywood's most infamous cold cases. This is the story of the murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Yes. Awesome. Super excited about that. I love this story. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Um, sources are endless. Um, <laughs> Wikipedia, Murder in Hollywood Land podcast. Podcast, uh, an episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, an episode of You Must Remember This Podcast. Mm-hmm. The Sordid Murder of This Hollywood Director Took the Fun and Sex Out of Tinseltown by <laughs> Laura Smith on Timeline.com. It's Still a Hot Chase on a Very Cold Trail for a Hollywood Killer by Karen James. That's from the New York Times. Fatty Arbuckle and the Birth of the Celebrity Scandal by Michael Shulman from the New Yorker. Queer Places at ElisaRoll.com, How to Get Away with a Hollywood Murder by Tim Tiemann from The Daily Beast, The Death of William Desmond Taylor by Heather Monroe, Medium.com, and The Death of a Gentleman by Annie Murphy, PhotoFriends.org. Yeah, that's a lot of sources. It's a lot of sources. It was <laughs> endless. It was endless. And I had to do like a lot of editing for this. Yeah. Um, okay. So William Desmond Taylor arrived in LA around 1912, 1913. Mm-hmm. He started his work as an actor, but eventually moved into directing films like Anna Green Gables, Huckleberry Finn, Captain Kid Jr., Jenny Be Good, Soul of Youth, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's directing stars like Mary Pickford, Wallace Reed, Dustin Farnham. So real... You know, setting the scene, we're talking Hollywood in the early 20s. It's still essentially like baby Hollywood. Right. And an interesting thing that's happening is that movie stars are essentially becoming like new American royalty, but like Mm -hmm. emphasis, emphasis on the new. Um, Most of them are coming from super, super humble beginnings, and they're now making like more money than they could have dreamed of. So to set the scene a little bit more precisely, months before Taylor was found dead in his apartment, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, um, had become embroiled in what would be considered the birth of the celebrity scandal with the alleged rape and murder of Virginia Rappe, Virginia Rappe during Labor Day weekend, 1921. Right. To give you an idea of how big of a star Arbuckle was and like what we're talking about in terms of like wealth and the amount of money that is like coming through the studios and into these movie stars pockets. Arbuckle had appeared in over 150 films. Wow. By that point. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's probably a lot of like one reelers and stuff. I would think. Yeah. And we have to, you know, another thing to remember is that like making a silent film back then isn't nearly as involved as making Right. They were just like cranking them out. Yeah. yeah, just a movie factory, essentially. Right. Um, but he'd been in over 150 films. He was earning at the time a million dollars at Paramount wow. a year. Do you want to take a guess as to how much money that is in today's money? A million dollars a year. I'm gonna say something like 50 or 60 million. That was an overshoot. It was like okay. 14 million dollars. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> Let's rein in our expectations (laughs) lightly. Um, Okay. He owned a 20 room mansion in Los Angeles and a fleet of trophy cars that included a $34,000 Pierce Arrow. That car in today's money would be over half a million dollars. Wow. And it was one of like several cars like that that he had. Yeah. 
So on Labor Day weekend, um, this isn't a story about Roscoe Arbuckle, but again, to give you guys some context, Mm -hmm. uh, during Labor Day weekend in 1921, Arbuckle, he's like, I'm tired. I've been doing a lot. He'd gotten burnt on the butt doing some (laughs) stunt or something in some film. And he was like, fuck this. I want to get out of the city for a little bit. So he decides to head up to San Francisco, go to the St. Francis hotel and party for the weekend. Uh, He gets three rooms there at some point during the weekend, Virginia Rappe, who has been a model and was sort of an aspiring actress, joins the party. Long story, somewhat short. She ends up in Arbuckle's room. She, and she's like, like in bad shape. She's mm-hmm. like, I can't even say complaining. She's like in terrible pain. She's uh, suffering from like terrible abdominal pains, mm-hmm. all this stuff. She ends up going to the hospital two days later, a day later she dies. And the doctors conclude that the cause of death was peritonitis from a ruptured bladder. Right. At this point, it's when people, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing because the Arbuckle scandal is a whole episode oh, in and of huge, itself. That's a huge story. Yeah. Yeah, but essentially what happens is that Arbuckle is accused of raping Virginia. And this is like, it's really gross, guys, and I'm sorry. But essentially what they say is that he, like, the assault on her was so violent and he was so big Mm -hmm. that like the heft of his body caused her bladder to rupture. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that Arbuckle came in at 266 pounds. Uh, Which is less. I mean, that's me on a good diet. Yeah. And it's, but the, yeah, you know, so it's like interesting to think of that. It's like at the time it was like, oh my God, he obviously fucking crushed her. And now it's like, well, I mean, plenty of people bigger are having sex without rupturing anybody's bladder and it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So chill the fuck out. I I would Um, hope so for my sake. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, moms. Um, Okay. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so that happens. He gets accused of this. Uh, and every, it's, it's, it's like the whole story is really gross because everybody's yeah. like, obviously look how fat he is. He's obviously right. a glutton and, and, and like a fucking, you know, pervert. Yeah, totally. Right. Um, he gets accused of rape. He gets arrested. He goes on trial three times. Um, and they finally find him innocent, but his career is ruined. Yeah. It's pretty um, much done. It's done. Um, yeah. I think he goes on to direct a little bit after that. Under yeah, and I think name. I think Buster Keaton had sort of tried to bring him back into some stuff because they were friends, but like yeah. it never recovered. Yeah, yeah, it never recovered. All of that to say, like Hollywood and the studio machine is like, oh shit, because it's been like plastered all over, mm-hmm. um, all over the newspapers. The details are like tawdry. in every tawdry and gross. People are calling for boycotts. Arbuckle's films get pulled and shelved. He costs the studio a ton of money. I mean, I think it's fascinating to look at the history of Hollywood and realize that like the moral panic around Hollywood started immediately. Immediately. And this is actually, thank you for bringing that up because this leads into like what I'm saying next. So, you know, the aftermath of all of this, Hollywood's facing like really intense scrutiny for essentially Mm -hmm. corrupting America's morals. Right. This is from the New Yorker article that I cited above. And it says, quote, in 1921, movie stardom had upended the traditional social hierarchy. Mm. And Arbuckle's celebrated spending turned into a cautionary tale of nouveau riche decadence Mm. as henry lerman who had been rape's boyfriend and also arbuckle's director told the press 
That's what comes of taking vulgarians from the gutter and giving them enormous salaries and making idols of them. What's interesting about this, and one of the things that I think is the most fascinating about doing this podcast is essentially at the end of everything, if you, if you pull a thread long enough, you're going to find white supremacy, yeah. <laughs> anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. classism, misogyny. Like mm-hmm. those are the big four things that you will in- inevitably find. And that's what was going on here. Honestly, at the time is that we had a small group of very wealthy people in the United States. And they were like, we don't want a bunch of fucking, you know, farm kids from Mm -hmm. Iowa being able to make as much money as we do. And so we want to put a quash on that because we want to keep the power for ourselves. And they couched it as like, we're really worried about the morals of this country and we shouldn't be like, we need to put a cap on that. I mean, it goes even a layer deeper because a lot of the fear was around like the studio bosses were right. Well, and I think largely Jewish. Right. And that's that's the thing as well, is that it's like you've got this of like, we don't want these poor people. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the discussions that were taking place in like back rooms of gentlemen's clubs were keeping the wealth among the right people and the wrong people were Poor people and quote unquote foreigners. Mm-hmm. And that's going to come up in my story too. Anyway. So, just an interesting thing to think of when you think about like where things like manners and societal rules came from. <laughs> it came from essentially people wanting to hoard wealth, yeah, um, gatekeepers. Yeah, gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so much of an eat the rich person, but I am an eat those kind of rich people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, I'm all for the people. Bulgarian nouveau riche. Nouveau riche, like those are my I'm, people. But. Well, and I mean, it's such an interesting thing too, right? Because America was like, "Hey, everybody, we're this cool new." Like the branding for America was like, mm-hmm. "Anything is fucking possible." American dream, you can do anything, and it's like, but only for Except, the like. Only if you're the right people, right. If you're, if you're Brown, if you're Jewish, if you are an immigrant, if you are black, if you are queer, if you're a woman, like you Mm -hmm. can't have anything you want. And when you get it, it becomes dangerous. Right. We need to protect the children. But we can continue to have our like fucking oil baron money. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, that's exactly right. Okay. So there you go. That's what's going on in Hollywood at the time. Um, Additionally, Mm -hmm. in like a very short period of time, you have the Arbuckle scandal, the murder of William William Desmond Taylor. And then not long after that, Wallace Reed would end up, I don't mean to laugh at that. I'm so sorry. (laughs) too soon. I'm so sorry. Right after that, Wallace Reed would wind up dead in the sanatorium that he had been sent to for a morphine addiction. So it's like, bam, 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 right? Like scandal, scandal, scandal. In an effort to stem the tide of censorship that they knew was coming, uh, the studios hired Will H. Hayes to create Mm -hmm. a self-policing system of do's, uh, I'm sorry, a self-policing system of don'ts and be carefuls, which ended up being the precursor to the Hayes code again that's another episode yeah and it's i think we've talked about it a little bit it's come up a couple times yeah yeah so let's get back to william desmond taylor Mm -hmm. so February 2nd, Taylor is found dead in his Alvarado Court apartment bungalow by his valet, Henry Peavy. Just to give you an idea of how this, which is also so weird to me that he was like a famous and successful director and Mm -hmm. he was living in an apartment. 
Mm -hmm. It's so strange to me, but essentially it was a little complex of bungalow, like two unit buildings of bungalow apartments that were like in a little horseshoe shape around an interior courtyard. Right. So, you know, it's not like a big connected thing. It's a bunch of little like freestanding buildings. Yeah. Here's what we know about, <laughs> about all this. So he gets found by his valet, Henry Peavy. Mm-hmm. In the weeks leading up to his death, Taylor was said to have been behaving oddly. I can't find any specifics about what behaving oddly means, hmm. but everybody is like, he was behaving really weird. Yeah. But no specifics. The night of February 1st, actress Mabel Norman, who we'll talk about a little bit more later on, visited Taylor at his apartment. She left at about 7.45 in the evening. Taylor walked Norman to her chauffeured car, which was had been parked along the street, I think Alvarado Street. The two like waved and blew kisses to one another as mm-hmm. the car drove away. Norman is the last known person to see Taylor alive. And people, the police, I think, put Taylor's time of death at like 750. Oh. So he like walked her out, came back in and died. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Right after he had walked her out, Taylor's neighbors, actor Douglas McLean and his wife Faith heard what they thought was a car backfiring. Mm. Faith had been like knitting on her porch and she like looks out the window and she sees what she describes as a funny looking and effeminate man in Taylor's doorway Mm. wearing a dark coat, a muffler around his neck and a tweed cap. Faith would later go on to say that the person looked like her idea of a motion picture burglar. Mm. Also just side note, I will love that she said motion picture. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm almost picturing like the hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> right. As did I until they were like coat, scarf, right. cap. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was like, was he in like the striped shirt and like the mask and, <laughs> you know, like creeping along, but that's not what happened. So she sees this person outside or, uh, or I'm sorry, like standing in the doorway. This person stops, turns back re-enters Taylor's apartment almost as if they'd forgotten something. They come back out, turn to look at Faith, smile at her, and then take off running between the buildings. Oh, that's spooky. Mm, Yeah, it's creepy. Um, Faith also told the police that the man looked funny, like a movie actor in white face makeup. And she Mm -hmm. also wondered due to the person's heightened build, if it might not have been a woman dressed as a man. Mm, Interesting. Mm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever heard that theory. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm coming at you with facts, hot (laughs) and fresh, hot and fresh facts. Um, At 7 a.m. the next morning, Taylor's cook and valet, Henry Peavy, comes back to work at Taylor's apartment and finds Taylor lying dead on the floor. Peavy runs out into the courtyard screaming that Taylor was dead. Mm hmm. It should be noted here that Henry Peavy was a black man and was probably like, fuck. Yeah. Right. Like he probably. Yeah, who are like, they going to look at? Right. Precisely. So he's like immediately he's dead. He's dead. I found him dead. Right. Um, Mr. McLean runs over with the landlord while fellow neighbor and actor Edner Purviance, Purveyance, Purveyance, um, mm. called the studio to tell them of Taylor's death. There are also some accounts that say that 
PV also called the studio. That's that's fascinating that like among their first calls are to the studio. Yes. I think it was the landlord who was like, we should call the police, but all the industry people were like, we're, we have to call yeah, the studio. Yeah, it just shows how much even back then Hollywood was a company town. Yes, absolutely. So the studio sends over Charles Eaton, who, who at the time was famous players, Lasky's GM. That studio, like I said, would go on to become Paramount. Mm-hmm. George Hopkins, who is Taylor's production manager, and screenwriter Julia Crawford Ivers. They arrived after the police. Hmm. Okay. Eaton tells the studio folks to head upstairs and collect any piece of correspondence they could find. And then Iton sneaks all of Taylor's letters Ooh. out of the bungalow. Okay. okay. So the poli- <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so detective Tom Ziegler arrives on the scene and thinking that it's a natural death. He's like, yeah, man, come on in, take a look. Like what's up dead body, cool <laughs> bungalow. Like, you know, maybe it'll be on the market. I, he like has no sense <laughs> of trying to maintain a crime scene. Yeah. Um, I guess. Cause he doesn't, think that it's a crime scene. So two stories about the cause of death uh, mm-hmm. that I found. First one is that Charles, now I'm not remembering if it's Eaton or Eaton. What have I been saying? Eaton? Charles Eaton steps forward and says, hey, I think he probably died of like a stomach hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that it's like, okay. The other story is that Detective Ziegler called for like a medical examiner. Some dude showed up and he was like, I'm the doctor, did a real quick look-see at Taylor and was like, this dude died of a stomach hemorrhage and then vanished. Like nobody ever heard or saw from that doctor ever again. Wow. So two possibilities, hypotheses about how the stomach hemorrhage thing came out. Either way, regardless of whether it was Charles Eaton or this like mystery doctor, the deputy coroner shows up and the deputy coroner is like, cool, I still have to do my job. So <laughs> let me like check we're out not, this body. We're not going to trust the mystery doctor who just vanished into thin air. Or this like studio GM. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like, it's clearly what happened. Yeah. Clearly, uh, clearly as he's like smoking a cigar and stuff. Um, <laughs> so the deputy coroner shows up and does his job and he attempts to lift Taylor's body. And that's when they discover a pool of blood underneath Mm -hmm. the body. So Taylor had not died of natural causes. He had in fact been shot in the back by a 38 caliber pistol. When the coroner does the autopsy, he discovers that the bullet entered Taylor about six inches below his left armpit, kind of like on the side. Mm -hmm. And that the bullet had kind of come up diagonally and had ended up either like in his neck or like right under his right collarbone. They think from like the angle of the gunshot that whoever shot Taylor was hugging him when they shot him. Oh, wow. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, it's just like. Yeah, that is is a weird. (laughs) Kind of like. A little dance there. (laughs) Just trying to create. Um, a visual for yeah, you. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to post the image of that. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, this is a serious topic. Okay. So at this point, when they're like, oh, not a stomach hemorrhage, he's been shot. Detective Ziegler is like, oh, my bad. And he's like, okay, let's shut this down. Let's Everyone like, get out. To... Yeah. Yeah. It's not on the market yet. Get out. Yeah, get out, get out, get out. 
you know, put down the stemware, get out. So he Mm -hmm. tries to secure what is now a very tainted crime scene. Taylor is found with $78 in his pocket. You want to take a crack at how much $78 is? I overshot before Mm -hmm. wildly. So I'm going to say $78, let's say $200. It is (laughs) $1,200. Why am I? I just, I can't do math. I can't do math. I mean, I can't either, but um, it's 12. Can you imagine $78 having the purchasing power of that's, $1,200? That's nuts. I hate everything. <laughs> okay. So he's found with $78 in his pocket, a two carat diamond ring on his finger. He's also got a gold locket with Mabel Norman's picture in it, mm-hmm. um, like in his pocket or something. So clearly this isn't a robbery. Like nothing's been taken. Also found in the alley next to Taylor's bungalow are six gold tipped cigarettes, Hmm. like the ones Taylor smoked. And they're found like on the ground. So that's what we know about his death. Right. So who the fuck killed William Desmond Taylor? Mm -hmm. Um, This is an interesting story because when you start to dig into it, there are like 500 possible suspects Mm -hmm. and almost everybody has just as plausible of a reason of killing him as the next person. Interesting. With the exception of like two people. Okay. So a first one that is like, that's not possible or not plausible is Taylor's valet, Henry Peavy. Mm -hmm. He is of course, immediately suspected and questioned, but other than being a black man like there's not anything that would point to him being a suspect right an interesting tidbit about this is that after taylor's funeral and all that stuff a hearst journalist because of course this was in the papers for like months yeah a hearst journalist tells pv hey i'll give you ten dollars if you can take me to taylor's grave in the like whatever that is the hollywood park cemetery wherever it is that he's buried Mm -hmm. and pv's like yeah i can do that like Yeah, Yeah, I can, I, yeah, I can show you where, where his grave is. Well, unbeknownst to Peavy, this journalist had teamed up with two Chicago mobster dudes because he, like this journalist was really like, I think Peavy did it and we're going to scare a confession out of him working solely on the idea that black people are scared of ghosts. Oh, I've heard this story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Takes Peavy to the cemetery. Peavy takes the journalist to Taylor's gravestone out from behind which one of these Chicago (laughs) (laughs) ruffians pops out in a sheet. Oh my God. And is like, Ooh, like PV, you murdered me. Confess now. At which point PV busts out laughing because one, this is the funny thing to me is that people were like, because the Chicago goon had like a very clear, heavy Chicago accent <laughs> and Taylor had a very like refined British accent. And also because he was dressed in a fucking sheet. I know. I mean, that's like the like, I'm not surprised that the Hearst newspapers would pull some shit like that. I'm surprised that some like Chicago mobsters would get behind because that is the dumbest idea. But... Who wasn't like, hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. I like I'm on board with this whole like Hamlet ghost thing that you're trying to do here, but a sheet is probably yeah. not. And gonna... maybe maybe get a British guy with the <laughs> accent to do it. I don't know. I mean, you're in Hollywood. <laughs> maybe like get some cool, you right. know, like ghost makeup. I mean, but call like up, a sheet. Call up Lon Chaney. See, you know, see if he's busy. <laughs> see, like. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it's uh, I've heard that story before. It is literally the dumbest. It's thing the dumbest story. Yeah. So he's like, he start he busts out laughing, and he's like, "Go fuck yourselves." Yeah. And then they're like, "Okay, well, I guess we didn't. I guess I guess he didn't do it. <laughs> he outsmarted our brilliant plan." <laughs> yeah, it's it's got real Scooby Doo villain energy. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Come on. <laughs> is ridiculous come on guys okay so next on the list of suspects is a man named edward f sands sands was taylor's former valet and he'd been busted for embezzlement forgery he'd like he was like a serial deserter in the Mm -hmm. military like he would like enlist and like be in the military and be like (laughs) peace and then like pop up in another branch somewhere and then be like this sucks and then like pop up in another branch somewhere else like dude you don't like the military yeah like try, try something else, try something else. And what I guess he tried was being a valet. So during the summer of 1921, while Taylor was in Europe, Sands forged $5,000 worth of checks Jeez. in Taylor's name, stole Taylor's car and wrecked it. Wow. So Taylor was like, you're fired. Bye. And $5,000. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to take it's like, a guess. <laughs> It's like $18 billion in 2022. <laughs> Probably. Yes, precisely. Uh, so Taylor's like, you're fired. Um, best of luck. Yeah. Um, in December of 1921. So that happened during the summer of 1921. In December of 1921, it's believed that Sands broke into Taylor's apartment, stole like a bunch of jewelry, mm-hmm. some some of these gold tipped cigarettes that I mentioned earlier, that kind of a thing. A few days later, Later, the stolen items end up in a pawn shop in Stockton, California. Mm. The handwriting on the pawn slip matches Sands handwriting. Mm-hmm. On December 27th, Taylor gets in the mail copies of the pawn slips with a note that reads, so sorry to inconvenience you even temporarily. Also observe the lesson of the forced sale of assets, a Merry Christmas and a happy and prosperous new year signed alias Jimmy V. Mm. Alias Jimmy V is thought to be a reference to the 1920 film Alias Jimmy Valentine, which was mm. about a an unjustly pardoned criminal. Again, the handwriting matches. Here's the thing that really freaks Taylor out is that the name on the pawn slips is William Cunningham Deanne Tanner. The reason mm-hmm. that that freaks Taylor out is because that is Taylor's real name. Oh, shit. So... So this guy's just totally fucking with him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So before Taylor landed in Hollywood, he was born in Ireland. Like stories go that he was like a huge disappointment to his dad because he like wanted to be a theater kid. And his dad was like, get the fuck out of here. I'm Mm -hmm. shipping you off to Kansas. You're going to go work on a dude ranch. Mm. So he did that for a minute before being like, this is not for me and moving to New York city. There he met a woman named Ethel, married her, worked for her father's antique shop. And they, Ethel and William had a daughter named Ethel Daisy. In October of 1908, Taylor just like vanishes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, you know, it's 1908. People fucking vanish all the time. So they were like, no internet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you could like literally walk into the next town and be like, I'm George Thornenberg. And people are like, yeah, that that tracks. And then you could just start a new life. Mm -hmm. So he disappears in 1908. 
And there's not a lot, like, we don't really know what Taylor was up to in the years <laughs> between 1908 and uh, 1912, 13, when he ended up in Hollywood. We do know that he spent some time as a gold prospector in like Canada, Alaska, the Pacific Northwest, San Francisco. But it's so, that's, that's crazy to me just because it's like, you think of like being a gold prospector, that seems so old West. And yeah. like just that weird borderline of like between the yep. old west and like the modern age of Hollywood. That's right. crazy. Yeah. 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 So that happened. So and like he's then Taylor's done a really good job of just like disappearing from his old life. Mm-hmm. So he's like, fuck a duck. So this guy um, figured it out. Mm-hmm. So he'd figured it out and apparently had told, I think, like Taylor's driver or something that he had figured this out and mm-hmm. and had basically been like, I'm keeping this information in case the old man like ever gets out of hand or something like that. Mm. And maybe that's why Taylor was acting weird in the weeks leading up to his yeah, death. Cause he was like, be I'm going to be, I'm going to be exposed. Yeah. Right. At any moment um, there. Okay. So, you know, the book Hollywood Babylon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hollywood Babylon is like a trash rag. Yeah. Kind of finger. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it's a really fun read, but like, it's all bullshit (laughs) it's all bullshit um so he talks about taylor's murder in that book Mm -hmm. and he posits that the reason that sands was even in taylor's life is because he was actually taylor's younger brother Mm. there's Like no yeah. evidence. I mean, that that's a good story, that. but <laughs> yeah. But like, and that, you know, he, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. There was like a whole <laughs> like scam. I don't know. But yeah, like he literally just made stuff up and put yeah. it in this book. A statewide search is conducted for Sands like immediately. Like the police are like, okay, cool. That's a suspect. Let's look for him. Mm-hmm. No one ever sees Sands again. Mm. He disappears. Mabel Normand, she's the other one that I'm like, there's nothing going on here. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was the last known person to see Taylor alive. She, okay, okay. (laughs) I don't think that she's a suspect, but there are some people who think that she was like responsible for Taylor's murder. Mm -hmm. I've read a little bit about her. Yeah. mm -hmm. Here's why. So Mabel Normand was a popular comedic actress. She was, she frequently appeared in movies with like Charlie Chaplin Mm -hmm. and Fatty Arbuckle. But when Arbuckle's movies got shelved because she was in so many of them with him, like her career got shelved as well. Mm -hmm. So that sucked for her. She was a little down on her luck. Yeah. Um, Mabel and Taylor became very, very, very close friends. They bonded over a love of books and technical manuals. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And she showed up that night because Taylor had uh, a couple of books that he wanted to give her. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of talk about an unrequited love between the two of them that Taylor was, was madly in love with Normand. And she was like, I don't feel that way about you. Henry mm-hmm. Peavy up until 1930 was like Mabel Norman did it. And everybody was like, that's, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> it's not um, it's, it's, it's not a thing. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of talk about that, but all of the evidence basically points to them essentially being like besties. Right. Okay. I think part, it wasn't part of the reason she was suspected is the whole thing of like, uh, what was her name? Faith saying it could have been a woman who was dressed as the burglar or whatever. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, is that that's just such a quick turnaround time yeah. because she was seen driving off in the car yeah. and then she's, I it mean, doesn't actually it's possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
So she is pulled in by the cops and like interrogated, like Mm -hmm. she's given like a grueling interrogation over her relationship with Taylor and all that stuff. And she's like, cool, 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 man. Like, talk to me about anything. I'll tell you about anything. Um, She also says, hey, I have letters. Like I can prove to you what our relationship was. I have letters, but I am worried that they're going to be misconstrued. Mm -hmm. Um, These letters would come to be known as the blessed baby letters. Mm. They're like really silly letters between two close friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, one of them said, sorry, I cannot dine with you tomorrow. I have an engagement with a Hindu prince. Mm-hmm. Signed, blessed baby. It's stuff like that. Yeah, like it's there's... like in jokey. I mean, it's like if anyone looked at your and my text messages, it would look shady as fuck. <laughs> we do <laughs> Out talk of about context. Yeah, we talk about murder a lot and stuff too. So <laughs> that's true. There's that. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's there's no like rebuffing of like feelings. There's right. no it's it's clear that they're friends right so she's like yeah man take a look at all my letters like i don't give a fuck now the other theory involving mabel normand is the drug theory there are stories that mabel had a two thousand dollar a month cocaine habit wow that taylor was really trying to get her to kick like he was really trying to help her there's like stories about her like him visiting her at her apartment and like a drug dealer comes and he's like get the fuck out of here and you know what i mean all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff Uh, apparently taylor was kind of like staunchly anti-drug so again the rumor is that he that taylor met federal prosecutors and offered to testify against her suppliers so some think that these drug dudes hired a hitman to take care of taylor yeah there's nothing that makes me think that mabel pulled the trigger Mm -hmm. i think the drug theory is plausible it's more plausible than the other But even her cocaine addiction is somewhat sketchy Mm -hmm. because Mabel also suffered from tuberculosis. Mm. So there are people who are like everything that people were like, oh, my God, she's like totally coked out of her mind could have been that she was sick with tuberculosis. Right. And like, that's why she looks terrible. And that's why she was always, you know, a bit of a mess. It's just like the rumor mill, you know, right. Becomes established fact. Right. And the people who talk about her tuberculosis say that like she kept it, she kept it pretty hidden. Mm -hmm. She wasn't like, Hey, everybody, BT dubs. I've got tuberculosis. Like I'm all good. Mabel actually ended up dying of tuberculosis just eight years later. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And apparently in the few days before her death, she had asked a friend, Julia, do you think they'll ever find out who killed Bill Taylor? Mm. She was 36 years old when she died. Yeah. Okay. Our next suspect is Mary Miles Minter. Mm -hmm. She's a piece of work. Yeah. I've heard of her. (laughs) Yeah. So quick background, Mary Miles Minter, M, what is it? Cubed, M cubed, um, (laughs) was born Juliet Riley in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, She started performing at the age of five and her mom was like, yes, yes. Make that money. Like, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. But child labor laws. So to skirt child labor laws, Mary's mother, Charlotte Shelby, stole the identity of Juliet's dead 16-year-old cousin, Mary, so that Juliet at 10 years old could work. So at 10 years old, Charlotte Shelby is pushing her daughter out and advertising her as a 16-year-old. So that's, that's, that's some, that's some good parenting right there. It's 
excellent quality, quality parenting. There's also a lot of stuff that like when Mary was 15, she got involved with this dude named James Kirkwood, who was like, I love you so much. I love you. Like, yes, let's like say that we're married, Uh, you know, Mm. like we're like, we're on this beach in Santa Barbara and like, yes, like in our hearts, we're married to each other. And so she slept with him and got pregnant and her mom made her have an abortion and, Mm -hmm. you know, like. She's having a hard time. She grew up without a dad. And it just seemed very much like Mary was all about like projecting feelings onto the older men in her life. Yeah. So sometime around uh, reports very sometime around when Mary was like 17, 18, 19, she stars in Anne of Green Gables that is directed by Taylor. Mm-hmm. Taylor, by all accounts, is a gentleman. He's very kind. He's very mm-hmm. encouraging of Mary. And she is just heart eye emoji yeah just yeah like just gaga crazy like, yeah just in falls yeah, yeah in love with them mary told anybody and everybody that would listen that her and taylor were in love that they were soulmates mm-hmm. um that you know they were going to be together but it was just taylor's like sense of propriety because he was too old for her and and all of this stuff like yeah she told everybody i mean she just she invented a narrative Yes, it's yeah. yeah, it's really pretty clear that like this was a completely one sided thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are even stories of like Taylor being at like a department store and he turns around and Mary's there. And, like, <laughs> I just picture her like popping out of the coat rack or something. Like, yeah, she's got real misty energy. She's got she's got real misty Coach Ben energy. Uh, yeah, call back to Yellow Jackets. Yes, it's a little <laughs> Yellow Jackets reference. Um, very much so. Like stories about her like showing up at his apartment with her bags in the middle of the night and being mm-hmm. like, I can't bear to spend another night without you. And he's like, we're not a thing. Yeah. So that sucks. She sent him a shit ton of love letters Mm -hmm. and they're all like my darling, my love. I can't wait till we're together. She also sent him a lot of letters that were coded, but like it was a really simple code. (laughs) Poor thing. <laughs> so when they cracked it, it was all just more of the like, my love, my soulmate, my heart. Mm-hmm. I can't wait so to wear together. Not like the Zodiac Killer cipher. <laughs> not like. the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So she's she's pretty obsessed with yeah. Taylor. You know, she's like she's convinced that they're in a relationship. I think it's really easy with a lot of the women in this story to be like, you know, and I'm even doing it myself of like poking fun at her. But again, this was a woman, this was a very young woman. I mean, it was like lots of bad choices were made around her. It's like not even her bad choices. It's like everyone in her life made bad choices for her. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty clear that she had some pretty hardcore, like arrested development. Mm -hmm. Um, sounds like in the aftermath of finding out that um, Taylor was dead, she like rushed down to the coroner's office and was like, you know, that's my mate. You have to let me see him. And she mm-hmm. like tried to get the coroner to take her blood to give to Taylor as like a transfusion. And mm-hmm. the coroner was like, that's that's not a thing because like he's he's dead he's it's done it's not gonna so you know there's like stories of her trying to like she had had this idea that she was going to like kiss his corpse 
at the funeral, but she was like too little to like get her face into the casket. So she just like reached up there and like she, it seems like she felt like coldness of his body. And that's when she was like, oh, he's like dead. Yeah. He's like for real dead. Yeah. 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 She was just a very like troubled. Right. Young woman. I've read about her and I've always thought that like, she didn't feel like a suspect to me as much as just like you said, just like a sad kind of tragic. Yeah. In her own right. Yeah. Now granted. Okay. So, well, let me come back to that. So she, she told the cops that Taylor was the first man, the only man who ever embodied all the glories of manhood in one private body. Mm. Intense. There are theories and If I were to find out that this was true, I wouldn't be like, that's impossible. There are theories that she had gone over and that she was like, let's be in a relationship. And he was like, fuck no, dude. Like, no, Mm -hmm. I don't like you that way. You know, (laughs) go away, go away. And that she was like, cool, (laughs) cool, 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 cool. Very misty coach. Yeah. Yes. Uh, That she was like, cool, 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 cool. Give me a hug. And then I'll be out of your way. And then she fucking shot him. Like I would buy, I I would buy that. Yeah. It's it's not impossible, but. It's not impossible. Our next suspect is Mary uh, M. Cubed's mother, Charlotte Shelby. Mm-hmm. There are two theories regarding Charlotte. Um, and again, I think both of them are plausible. Mm-hmm. Mm, sorry. No. I think one of them is plausible. Okay. First is that Mary was desperate to get out of acting and to get married and start a life. She never really liked being an actor or a performer and really only did it because she was kind of being forced to by her mom. Mm-hmm. And and essentially that Charlotte was going to remove any threat to her meal ticket daughter's career. Right. Apparently, she said like aloud publicly that she was going to blow Taylor's head off. Well, okay. Yeah. There was, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that she was like, stay away from my daughter. And he was like, I am. I'm trying. You know, I'm yeah. trying. <laughs> like she literally rolled out of my armoire. Like, I don't know what to do about this. Right. I buy that. Yeah, I buy that. that. That seems, that seems not implausible mm-hmm. for somebody who is willing to make her 10 year old daughter act like a 16 year old, just the fucking danger mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. Um, And just being like, sorry, kid, you got to get us money. Well, I mean, she clearly didn't actually give a shit about her daughter. Like this was pure greed. And again, I think it's one of those things that it's like, and also maybe she was just fucking trying to survive, you know, like Mm -hmm. fuck shit was hard at any rate. So there's that theory. The second theory, and this is the one that I'm like, I actually think this one is a little less plausible Mm -hmm. is that Charlotte was also having an affair with Taylor Mm, and that she showed up at his apartment one night to find Mary there and was like, but this blah, blah, blah. Killed them in a jealous rage. Well, killed him in a jealous rage. Mm-hmm. Here is a thing that is a bit damning. Charlotte actually owned a 38 caliber pistol mm-hmm. that had similarly unique bullets as the bullet that was found in Taylor's body. That feels not. I mean, that's starting to feel fairly plausible. Right. Fairly plausible. Um, Just again, to give you an idea of the type of person that Mary was and where she was in her own like arrested development she used that gun to fake a suicide attempt Mm. like she grabbed it ran upstairs slammed the door and like fired the gun and everybody's like oh my god oh my god oh my god you know mary and they beat down the door and she's like laying on the ground and everybody's crying and she's like that'll teach you and everybody's like what the fuck is wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) this family is just 
this family dumpster fire yeah um charlotte allegedly later threw that 38 pistol into a louisiana bayou Mm, convenient Uh uh-huh there are people who speculate that the small person the small weird person that faith (laughs) mclean saw could have easily been mary or charlotte in disguise charlotte was also really close friends with the los angeles da at the time and so Mm. people think maybe she pulled some strings whether it was for herself or for her daughter Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of taylor's murder mary's career was basically over because the audience was like "Ooh, you guys were having an affair which i'm like what the like yeah what (laughs) weirdos you are. Um, But they were like, "Mm, we don't like that. So like they boycotted her movies and she was honestly like, cool. And now I don't have to do this anymore. Right. Both Mary and her older sister, Margaret would go on to sue Charlotte for mishandlings of their earnings. Shocking. Mm -hmm, Shocking. Margaret, who I will say was suffering from depression and alcoholism, publicly accused her mother of Taylor's murder in 1938. Hmm. In 1937, Mary was like, yo, charge me or exonerate me. Like, I'm done. I'm done done with this. I'm done with this. And she said, quote, shadows have been cast upon my reputation. She died in 1984 at the age of 82. I believe she may be the last. I think she was the last of the surviving. She was the last survivors of the suspects. Margaret Gibson. Hmm. (laughs) Okay. Margaret Gibson had acted with Taylor when he was acting in films like early on in like the 19 teens. Uh Um, In 1917, she got arrested for vagrancy and opium dealing. In 1923, she got arrested again for being connected to a blackmail and extortion ring. Mm. Apparently somewhere along the way, she got real mixed up with some big time blackmailers who flipped on her for lesser sentences. Now, okay, let me Let me put the brakes on myself. Okay. So that happened. There's not like a huge connection. She was never brought up as a suspect at the time. Mm -hmm. She wasn't really in Taylor's life. Yeah. It feels pretty tenuous. Yeah. But in 1964, on her deathbed... Margaret called for a priest, and as she lay dying waiting for the priest, Margaret apparently confessed to her neighbors that she had killed Taylor herself. Hmm. And then she died. Okay. Uh, yeah, at 70 years old. Well, that's, um, it's not nothing. Yeah. And there was, like, stuff in his past that was blackmail material. Right. And that's the thing, is that, like, basically people think that Margaret was was trying to blackmail Taylor, and the scheme went horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... Why was she trying to blackmail him? Obviously, we've got this story about him abandoning his family and his true identity. It did come to light after the fact, but also in 1918, Taylor's previous wife and their daughter were at a movie when they saw Taylor pop up on screen and Ethel was like, that's your dad. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the daughter started writing to him via the studio and some point before he died between 1918 and 1922 taylor was like yes ethel daisy is my daughter i like claim her as my one true heir mm. like he acknowledged her legally so maybe it was less blackmail material than you might think yeah like but a blackmailer uh, may not know that maybe that's why it went horribly wrong precisely the other theory was so 
Taylor has all of these women around him, Mm -hmm. but wasn't involved with any of them. Mm -hmm. So the other theory is that it's not that he was just like super committed to bachelorhood, but that he was in fact gay. Mm -hmm. I think I've heard that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I had a hard time finding like concrete evidence of it. It seems like it's a lot of rumors and stuff. And also it, it makes sense. In 1981, uh, George Hopkins, who I said earlier was his production manager who showed up, um, Mm -hmm. uh, when they found him dead, he also worked as a set designer. George Hopkins wrote an unpublished memoir in which he claims that he and Taylor had a long affair. Mm. That they were like deeply committed to each other, that they had a, a, a passionate but discreet relationship. Interesting. There's also other stories that it's like, again, you know, gay orgies and opium uh, dens. Yeah, and, of course. I mean, of course. But. Yeah. And I mean, like, that sounds like a bitch in time. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it, it seems it seems pretty, pretty tawdry, pretty. Yeah, that feels that feels very Hollywood Babylon. Hollywood Babylon, yeah. yeah. Others seem to claim that it was well known that Taylor was a prolific bisexual Lothario. Mm, okay. Which I mean, you know, well, you know, good for him. Get it? Yeah. This may be why the studio was like, get over there and clean up the apartment. That would make sense. They knew that he was gay. That's the and whole they like were like sneaking out the letters and stuff. Yeah. Right. And like we get it. And as long as you, you know, you don't get caught with your pants around your ankles, you know, in a park or something, like we don't care. Yeah, you do you, but yeah, this can't be public. Yeah. So it's possible that they were trying to sort of like erase some, you know, gay evidence. Right. And in return, leave some like hetero evidence. Um, Heavy um, scare quotes. Heavy. (laughs) Well, because they were like, we found a a piece of pink lingerie, you know, in his. And it was like, okay, guys. A little try hard there. Yeah. Real like heavy handed. (laughs) Um, Hollywood Babylon says that it was like piles of women's lingerie, pornographic <laughs> pictures of starlets, including Mabel Normand, love letters, like all sorts of shit. Again, that no evidence. Is, that book is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless, no one was ever charged uh, mm-hmm. with Taylor's murder and the case remains unsolved today, though countless authors have written about it and crime junkies and these authors tend to lean towards either Charlotte Shelby or Margaret Gibson being the murderer. Interesting. Apparently director King Vidor, mm-hmm. Vider, Vider. I think Vidor. Yeah. Um, had done his own investigation into Taylor's death in 1967 for a film project and author Sidney Kirkpatrick found Vider's 1967 papers while writing a bio. while white. <laughs> Let me do a hard reset. Um, (laughs) (laughs) While writing a biography on him and was like, oh, this is actually a much more interesting story, switched topics and wrote the book Cast of Killers, in which he claims to have solved Taylor's murder. Mm. Um, Veter claimed to have discovered that Taylor was gay and that the studio was reeling in the Arbuckle aftermath to keep right. his sexuality under wraps. Kirkpatrick, by way of Veter, pins Charlotte Shelby for the murder because she found Mary at Taylor's apartment that night. Mary and Charlotte's stories about something to say about this is that Mary and Charlotte 
Charlotte's alibis and their stories about what they were doing and all that stuff, it changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Like the police and, and interviewers and everything never got the same story from them twice. Kirkpatrick claims that Charlotte paid off officials to keep herself and her daughter out of jail. Author and Hollywood historian William J. Mann claims in his 2014 novel uh, to have solved the murder. That book is called Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. Mm. Um, He, and this is the really funny thing, is that like all of these books are like (laughs) 100-year-old cold case, heretofore unsolved, now solved. But it's like they're basically just like trotting out the same details. It's like all the Zodiac books. 100%. 100%. So man casts his vote for Margaret Gibson. Okay. And I uh, listened to the murder in Hollywood land podcast is based heavily on the evidence presented in man's book. And I listened to an interview with him. That was like the last episode of the podcast where he's basically like, he's like, that's the only theory that like lines up with the evidence. Like there is Mm -hmm. no other plausible story for who murdered him. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Sam's. Yeah, Sam's, well, I was going to say me, is a huge suspect in yeah, all of this. Like, it's been a while since I've read this story, but like that is he is the character that I remember reading and thinking he sounded like this, the guy to me. Yeah. He yeah. fucking disappeared. Right. And like, he's a and again, dude there's, and, there's a blackmail component to it and yeah, yeah. a revenge yeah. component i mean that that feels like pretty plausible yeah and i mean i know that we want to sit here and say all this stuff because it's pretty scandalous but the thing is is like we don't know anything more about sands because he fucking disappeared at the end of the day everyone who might have been involved in taylor's murder is now dead Right. Uh, the evidence has been lost or destroyed right and it's unlikely that we're ever going to learn anything more than what we already know. So that is the frustrating and titillating story of one of Hollywood's, one of Hollywood's (laughs) most infamous cold cases, the murder of William Desmond Taylor. Yeah, that's a great story. I mean, that is one of those like classic Hollywood, kind of Hollywood noir type. Yeah, and a great cast of characters. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody looks guilty and... I just think like if I had a time machine and could just go back in time and observe a community in an era, early Hollywood, I would love to like just be a fly on the wall. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I think I would want to partake in it a little bit. (laughs) Um, I mean, it does sound like a a good ass time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably want to like, you know, hop out before the depression started. But I think the interesting thing to me, and you know this, that like I have been in this like golden age of Hollywood kick for the last two fucking years of this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But part of it is, is just because it's such like a petri dish of the American dream Mm -hmm. that it is like you can be a fucking beet farmer from Ohio. And come to Hollywood and we're going to make you over. We're going to stick you into the star machine. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you have more money than God. Right. And like. There was just this new industry that just almost like sprung up overnight. Yeah. You know, and it was all of a sudden, like I was hearing something that like, you know, there was, did it start with Mary Pickford or Clara Bow, but like before that, they didn't really put people's names on the movies. It was just like, you know, it's some asshole who's doing a thing. Like, <laughs> you don't need to know who it is. And then with one of them, it was that people started writing the studios and being like, who is the girl? And they were I like, oh, there's some 
Yeah. Like that's that a whole Clara other Bow. animal. Right. Yeah. Like that's a whole other animal of what we can capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, getting into like, you know, what was going on with the studios and uh, people like Adolf Zucker, Adolf Zucker, Z- right? Zucker, I think. Zucker? Yeah. Um, And like what he was doing with like the studio machine versus like United artists and that they, that they were like, no man, this is like a collaborative thing. Like we're creating Mm -hmm. art together. It's just. And United artists was kind of a miserable failure, but was also like sort of like how how ambitious. Right. You know, like what a cool idea. And that they like, they were able to give it a shot. Yeah. You know, Uh, again, it's this like, wonderful microcosm of the American dream and how like anything was possible. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was really not like Hollywood at that time was crazy because it really was like, they were kind of letting in everybody, you know, now it's like so hard to break into that business. But like at the time it was, it was so brand new. Right. It was just like anyone with a fucking idea could go out there and like, yeah, become a superstar. Yeah. I mean, I was reading a little bit in the stuff that I was doing for the, you know, to give the context of what had happened with Arbuckle, like that kid had a, I mean, just a horrible life, Mm -hmm. like was abandoned and like, you know, some like literally got like abandoned by, um, I think his mother died and he was sent to live with his father and his father was like peace and like left in the middle of the night and abandoned him. And he was Mm -hmm. like found crying on some steps by some neighbors Mm -hmm. and like became Fatty Arbuckle. Right. Like, and, what and can the we fuck? can we just say I know this wasn't the Fatty Arbuckle story, but from everything I know about that, I mean, it does sound like he got kind of railroaded. Well, from- yeah, the I think you know the thing is is like there are a lot of podcasts who've done really wonderful deep dives mm-hmm. into that. You must remember this is one of them, right? And the the issue is is that we have an unreliable narrator in the form of the woman who accused Fatty Arbuckle of raping. Virginia. Right, right, exactly. Um, and like when you dig into her stuff, like, it, yeah, this it is, just it calls everything into question. Yeah. And additionally, too, that like for the attack to have been, for the attack to have taken place and have been as violent and sadistic as this woman claimed it to have been, Fatty Arbuckle would have had to have had a Jekyll and Hyde personality. Right. Everybody else was like, he was shy. He was like mm-hmm. very gentlemanly. He was very sweet. Yeah. Um, you know, was was really shy around women. Like, there's no way. Yeah. I, I mean, think- again, we'll never know for sure, but just everything Precisely. I've read about it, there's that story is like very much called into question, I think. Mm-hmm. And like just, and you know, back to like thinking about Fatty Arbuckle and where he came from and the whole idea of this like Vulgarian Novu Rish. Yeah. Like, like I love, like it's one thing I love about that era of Hollywood. It's like all these people came out of like vaudeville and like, yeah. low, you know, low quote, quote unquote, low class entertainment. Right. And like- well, and it was uh, George Clooney said it recently, right? That he was like, this idea of the Hollywood elite is hilarious because we're right. like from Indiana. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, he's from George Clooney's from Kentucky. You yeah. Know? Like, <laughs> you know, and like, that's the interesting. And again, this is one of those things that like, it's always good to do, not like in a QAnon way, but it's always good. <laughs> to like look into widely held beliefs that 
only benefit a small portion of the population. Right. Because the fact of the matter is, is again, like we sit here, it's really funny that somebody like Donald Trump is like Hollywood elites and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, again, you have a golden George toilet, Clooney, motherfucker. Yeah. George yeah. Clooney came from Kentucky. Right. You came from, again, like a fucking line of war barons. Like, what right. are you talking about? Right. It, it's, it's insane. It's insanity to me. So again, when somebody is pushing this thing that is like, oh, this is the way that we do stuff. And there's only a small percentage of the population who benefits from those ideals. I do not mean vaccines. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not mean (laughs) science. I'm so over this pandemic. Um, Then you just seem to be like, hmm. Yeah. And again, the majority of critical thinking skills. Yeah. The majority of the time, you know, you've said this before, and I'm just going to expand on the idea a little bit. The majority of the time, when you see something like that and you start peeling back the layers of the onion, what's at the root is anti Semitism, (laughs) racism, white supremacy, and misogyny. Like, yeah. No, I mean, well, it just, as I've said, like, it just always boils down to it's the Jews' fault at some point. Right. And like, and that's very much the story of the like moral panics around Hollywood because these early studio bosses were not all, but largely, you know, Jewish, Jewish immigrants, mm-hmm. first, second generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was this fear of the foreigner and the foreign influence. And, you know, yeah, which is, i.e., yeah. Jewish people, right. um, which you will, know, which will uh, come up in my story. So fantastic. Yeah. Let's do it. So are we ready? Should we dive in? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I've got another movie story from 1922, but rather than Hollywood, we're going to focus on the old country. And we're going to talk about (laughs) the motherland, the motherland, or actually the fatherland. Uh, Okay, the fatherland. This is the story of the most famous illegal film ever made. Yes. Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. (laughs) Um, I don't think I knew that it had a subtitle. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Okay, so my sources for this, a lot of Wikipedia and a lot of me just being a horror geek and kind of knowing the story and then just having to like, double check dates and names and stuff right um but also a little uh, quote from uh, the tate museum website just sort of about what german expressionism is uh, cool. also what is german expressionism in film from studiobinder.com the bootleg files nosferatu from filmthreat.com why nosferatu is the most famous illegal film ever made from cbr.com and nosferatu the silver screen's first dracula resurrected for the digital age gorgeous from Diabolique magazine. Yes. So this story is mostly about 1922, but to really give the context, we got to go back about a quarter century to 1897 and the publication of Dracula. Okay. So just a little bit about Bram Stoker, who's the author of Dracula. Uh, he was born November 8th, 1847 on the north side of Dublin. His parents were Abraham Time Stoker. Time out. Yeah. Bram Stoker's Irish? Yep. Yep. Irish. No clue. Yeah. Now he's, I mean, he's, he's, Known for, like, he became, and I'll get to it, he he became very, like, a public figure when he was living in London. So I think a lot of people sort of assume he was a British author. I don't know. I thought he was, like, Hungarian or Bavarian or something. No, 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 no. And, in fact, I'll mention that (laughs) when we get into Dracula itself. Um, No, he he was Irish. He was, like, Irish to the core. 
uh, Dublin Irish. Uh, his parents were Abraham Stoker and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley. Okay. Um, he was the third of seven children. When he was very young, he was actually very ill with like a mystery illness. Uh, no one knew what was wrong with him. He was actually bedridden until he was about seven. Didn't start attending school until he was seven. And I think this is like very important because like, and I didn't write down the quote, but he basically has talked about or had talked about it. It was like, you know, I was stuck in bed and I really had to like go into myself and go into my imagination. And you wow. know, this, is, this is the story of like a lot of writers, particularly in like fantastic speculative fiction type genres. So I just have to say just for a moment, I know that we're bombarded with stuff and there are like some detriments to us never being bored, mm-hmm. but I mean, I guess, you know, case in point, my God, like mm-hmm. being sick and in bed and just being like, well, this is it. <laughs> I guess I'm here with my thoughts. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that I, seems... I, I think my little like undiagnosed ADHD or ADD brain would just be like, no, just check. It I'm out. done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm very like, I'm generally very happy to kind of sit around and do nothing and just think about things. And, you know, again, I'm a writer, so. Right. But I also need to be able to like get out of the house every so often that that right. does seem miserable. But yeah. like, like I said, he had this mystery illness until he was seven and then kind of recovered. And by the time he got to college, he went to Trinity College in Dublin, he had become like a very like skilled and kind of celebrated college rugby player. Oh, so nice. He went from bedridden child to this like athlete. Nice. He graduated. Up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He graduated from Trinity College in 1870. Then he got a master's degree in 1875. In 1878, he married a woman named Florence Balcom. She's going to be important to the story. She was the daughter of a Lieutenant Colonel James Balcom. Wikipedia called her a quote, celebrated beauty. Um, Mm. And she had at one point been like the paramour of Oscar Wilde. You're giving me a very critical (laughs) look. (laughs) Well, because Oscar Wilde is gay. Or was he not? Was he... Somewhere I think on the he spectrum. was more on the queer spectrum because I think he he, he and he was kind of a famous hedonist, so I think he was just like down Bring to it. fuck. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, I don't care about the equipment; I just care about the activity. But let's fucking do this. Yeah. Let's get naked. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Bram and Oscar were actually friends in college. But then they had a big falling out over Florence because Florence decided she she was more into Bram. I think I I mean I'm reading between some lines here. She might have been like Oscar, you're a lot of fun. I'm not sure your marriage material, right? Um, yeah, and Bram, he's um, like much more like a stolid kind of solid guy. You know? right. Look, the orgies <laughs> have been fun, but I need to but, settle down. Right. <laughs> and so like Bram and Oscar had like a big falling out, but then they did resume their friendship later. And when Oscar Wilde was kind of like exiled over in Europe uh Mm. Bram actually went and like visited him so okay yeah while he was in college Bram really became just like enamored with theater like he just fell in love with theater Mm -hmm. after college he started working for the Irish Civil Service but kind of as like a little side gig he was a theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail this is kind of interesting because that newspaper was actually co-owned by a writer named Sheridan Le Fanu, who's a very famous, like, gothic writer. Yeah, um, okay, okay. And he's he's probably most famous for the sort of short novel slash novella Carmilla, which is an early vampire novel. And it's got okay. kind of, like, lesbian themes, like, sort of subtle. Hot, okay. Like, yeah. Um, and, like, people have talked about, like. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> 
I mean, I'm glad you said it, not me. (laughs) It's interesting. Like I was reading about this and how Bram was probably very like, because he knew Sheridan Leifanu and he had read Carmilla. He was very influenced by Carmilla when he wrote Dracula. But everyone sort of agrees, like he probably missed the like lesbian subtext of that book. (laughs) He's like, they were really good friends. Like (laughs) anything I've kind of read about Bram Stoker's, it sounds like he was like a pretty nice guy, maybe a little sheltered. Like, (laughs) which is just interesting because he was friends with Oscar Wilde. So, you know. Yeah, that's I. I'm baffled by this. Okay. <laughs> um, but so he had started writing these theater reviews for the Dublin Evening Mail. Other critics did not like his reviews and like kind of trashed him. Like, I think they saw him as like an upstart. But God bless. Okay. People in the theater scene were like, oh, we, we actually, we really appreciate this guy. I think of he course. was like taking theater maybe more seriously, you know, than some of the other critics. Interesting. Also, look, you're a theater critic. You're not a theater (laughs) critic critic. So stay stay in your your lane. lane. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you fucking bourgeois pig. Um, so yeah, so other critics didn't like him, but actually people in the theater scene did. And after he wrote like a kind of glowing review of a production of Hamlet by the famed actor, Henry Irving, actor manager, Henry Irving, Irving actually reached out to Bram was like, let's go get dinner. And like, they kind of developed a relationship and became good friends. And Irving ended up hiring him Mm. to become the business manager and acting manager of the Lyceum Theater in London's West End. And I'm sure you know about Henry Irving. Like he was like one of the big actors of like the London stage of the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. So Stoker and his wife, Florence, they moved to London in the late 1870s. He, he started working at the Lyceum. He and Irving, you know, stayed very close friends. And Irving kind of like this association with Henry Irving, like really brought the Stokers into like the public sphere. So they mm-hmm. became kind of like part of the like the, I don't know what you would say, the, the glitterati of London at the time. Like, Ew. They were okay. like friends with Arthur Conan Doyle and people like that. So, okay. And of course, Irving, he was, you know, famous, not just in England, he was famous kind of all over the world. So he was a touring actor, you know, they mm-hmm. would, they would take his shows and they would tour them throughout Europe, throughout the U S and Stoker would travel with him. And interesting because like you were saying, you assume Bram Stoker was like Hungarian or something. I think a lot of people make that assumption because Dracula is like this Eastern European, you know, he's from Transylvania, you know, right. Stoker never actually went to Eastern Europe. Um, on all these okay. tours and I'll get to it a little bit more when we get to Dracula, but he really knew nothing about Eastern Europe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he became very like fond of the U S though. Okay. And so when he later became known as a novelist, he set several of his later novels in the U S and he would often work American characters into his British stories, which was like really uncommon for like Victorian literature. So like okay. probably the most famous of these characters is in Dracula. There's the character of Quincy who is like, the Texan, you know, he's like right. kind of Texan oh. cowboy. Yeah. 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 Okay. While he was working for Irving, Stoker kind of discovered the second passion for writing. He became a writer of what were called quote sensation novels. Okay. Which were kind of an outgrowth of like Gothic fiction, very melodramatic, very sensationalistic, very like genre, like not, not high literature, not trying for high literature is very like adventure fiction, horror fiction, you know, like okay. and they were called sensation novels. Cause it was all about this like sensory experience of reading one of those books 
of his was his seventh published book, which was Dracula, Mm. which was published in 1897. So Bram was largely inspired. He and his wife would visit this English coastal town called Whitby. And that was like really inspired the setting of Dracula. But he had also, he had read books like Carmilla. As I mentioned on our very first episode, John Polidori's The Vampire, you know, that also came out of that uh, Geneva group that led to the creation of Frankenstein. Yes. John Polidori's The Vampire was a huge hit at the time, kind of somewhat forgotten today. But when Bram read The Vampire, it really informed how he conceived of the character of Dracula. Like I said in that episode, the vampire was like a very, it was like a peasant folklore. Mm. You know, largely Eastern European, you know, okay. it was all like these small town, like a lot of it's very informed by like tuberculosis, the black death, things like that. Mm. And, you know, it's like these little villages in Slovakia or Romania, you know, it's like my father died and I think I saw him outside my window. So we need to dig up the corpse and bury him in a river, but, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> John Polidori's innovation to the vampire myth was the character of Lord Ruthven, which I talked about in that Mm -hmm. episode, Mm -hmm. um, which is this very aristocratic British vampire. And so that really became kind of the model for Dracula. Okay. He was also probably somewhat influenced by some Irish folklore around a character called the Abartak, which is sort of like the Irish, it's like an Irish boogeyman or vampire figure. Cool. Okay. Um, What he was probably not particularly influenced by was the story of Vlad Tepish, the actual Dracula. It seems that he didn't really know much about Vlad Tepish. Uh Other than the name and the general location and the idea that like, ooh, this was like kind of a bad guy. There's nothing in the character of Dracula Mm -hmm. in the book that really has anything to do with Vlad. So it's really like, it's much more like Lord Ruthman, Carmilla. Like those are the influences. It's so ironic to me because like everyone associates Dracula in vampire mythology with Eastern Europe. And the guy who really created the modern myth knew nothing about Eastern Europe. God, it was kind of not even interested in it. <laughs> He's like, blah, 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 whatever. whatever. Some Romanians. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So long story short, don't go reading Dracula to get like any sort of accurate representation of what like Romania is like. <laughs> okay. So like I said, the book was published in 1897. It was published pretty cheaply. Um, it was like I said, it was one of these sensation novels. So it was like very, it was like kind of churned out. Interestingly, like normally you would sign a publishing contract and the book would come out six months later. Stoker signed the contract and the book came out six days later. What the? F- <laughs> yeah. So they just like cranked it out and it was a pretty successful. I don't think it was like, it hadn't become like the iconic Dracula that we know, mm-hmm. yet, but it was like pretty successful. Hold up. Where are we? With the printing press at this time, because I'm just trying to figure out <laughs> we're, if we're, somebody's like working around the clock. We're, we're deeply into the printing press. Okay. I mean, the printing press is like from the 1500s. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, they, they were they were able to like really mass produce stuff. By this okay, time. okay. <laughs> I was worried about some poor intern. Just like having to like typeset each one like individually. No, I don't. I think they were just cranking them out. Like I said, it was, it was pretty successful, but it didn't actually make Bram a lot of money because he kind of signed a shitty contract and Mm. like got kind of screwed on the royalties. Um, (sighs) And then it started like being serialized in us newspapers, which had different copyright laws. Right. As we know from the Irving story as well. Yeah. And apparently 
brand kind of fucked up the U.S. copyright, mm. and so like didn't really secure the U.S. copyright. That's going to come up later in the okay. story. Okay. So the book was like being published in U.S. newspapers, and then it was released by Doubleday in like an official American edition in 1899. What made the character really become iconic, though, was the stage adaptation of the play. Huh. Okay. Um, it was actually performed before the novel was published the same year. Wow. Um, performed at the Lyceum in 1897. This was done to establish the copyright protections in the UK. Huh. Um, okay. And then the play, like it toured, it played on Broadway. I think there were like different adaptations of it would pop up over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most famous early actors in the stage version of Dracula mm -hmm. was a Hungarian actor named Bela Lugosi. Hey! Who would, yep, who would later go on to portray the character in the 1931 Universal Pictures film Dracula. Okay. Um, this is like the Dracula we all know, of course. Right. The cape and the collar and it's the also widow's like peak. not a particularly good. I think I talked about it on this podcast where like the Mexican Dracula is much better. <gasps> right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, Bella Lugosi's Dracula is really not a very good movie, actually. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. just not that interesting. Of the universal horror movies, it's kind of the least interesting, but it did. It created this iconic character. But mm -hmm. this is like 30 some years later. This is in 1931. Mm -hmm. There was a version that came out before that. That is going to mm -hmm. be like the main crux of my story here. Okay. Um, but just real quick, just a little bit more, like close out the Bram Stoker story. So he continued publishing after Dracula, but nothing really hit the like the nerve that Dracula did. Mm -hmm. um, so he published, I mean, there's a whole bunch of Bram Stoker novels. Uh, probably his most famous other novel was The Lair of the White Worm, which came out in 1911. Okay. Um, he ended up suffering a bunch of strokes. And then oh. he died on April 20th, 1912. People have also theorized that he might have had tertiary syphilis and that might have played a part in his death, but I don't think anyone really knows that. Tertiary syphilis? I don't know which version of syphilis that is. I think I looked it up and I forgot to write it down, but it's, I think tertiary syphilis is the one that's more congenital, but I may be wrong. Like it's not, I think it's maybe not the sexually transmitted version. Okay. Could be wrong. Can I, can I fact check you while you do yeah. this? I just am like very curious about this. Okay. Can tin you. So he died in 1912. His widow Florence then became the executor of his literary estate. And she was famously very protective of his work. And that's going to be very important. Okay. Did you find it? I did. It's saying, hold on. This is from the CDC. Uh -huh. So don't at me. Tertiary syphilis refers to gumas, cardiovascular syphilis, psychiatric manifestations, e.g. memory loss or personality changes, or late neurosyphilis. Guidelines for all forms of neurosyphilis, e.g. early or late neurosyphilis, are discussed elsewhere. Blah, la, 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 la. Okay, that didn't give me a lot of information, CDC. <laughs> which I think if I'm not mistaken, if you go back to my H.P. Lovecraft episode, uh, mm -hmm. I, I believe it's it's thought that Lovecraft's father died of tertiary syphilis. So I think I talked about it in that episode. I don't remember what I said. Okay. So apparently what I'm seeing is tertiary essentially means late stage syphilis. Oh, okay. So you've gone through the painless sores. You've gone through a rough red or reddish brown rash in the palm of your hands, uh, patchy hair loss fatigue and then you've gotten into so that makes sense uh, tertiary which is also interesting yeah. you know at this point in the story but um that is when essentially syphilis is starting to fuck your shit up 
Right. And I think this is when you like it causes the psychiatric problems. This is why H.P. Lovecraft's father was put in a sanitarium. Right, right, right. I don't know. And I have a biography of Bram Stoker that I have not read. Mm -hmm. You know, reading about this, like it feels to me like people are like speculating on the syphilis thing. I'm not sure that there's a lot of evidence for that, but I could Mm -hmm. be wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, so after he died, his widow became like very protective of his estate and his work. Okay, This takes us to Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about a German filmmaker named F.W. Murnau. Okay. Uh, So Friedrich Wilhelm Plump was born on December 28th, 1888. He was born in the province of Westphalia in what was then the kingdom of Prussia. Um, His father, Heinrich, was very successful owner of a cloth factory. Like Stoker, young uh, Friedrich, he formed an early passion for theater Uh. and when he was a kid, like his family lived in this villa in Northwest Germany and he would put on like small plays that he directed, you know, and starring his friends and brothers. He was also a very precocious reader. He'd read books by like Nietzsche and Shakespeare by the time he was 12. Good job. Uh, I mean, I'm 44 and I've never read Nietzsche. So, you know, that's impressive. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) I've also never wanted to read Nietzsche. I mean, that's the thing, right? (laughs) Is that I'm like, I mean, like if you're into it, awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Not my thing. Not my thing. He ended up taking the pseudonym Murnau from a town of that name that was near Munich, where he had lived for a while. Hmm. He ended up going to the university in Berlin and studied philology. And I did not look up what philology is. How do you spell it? (laughs) P-H-I-L-O-L-O-G-Y. Okay. Do another little fact check here. Huh, interesting. Again, not at all what I would have thought, but philology is the branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationships of a language or languages. Oh, okay. So kind of like tied to linguistics. Yeah. Interesting. So that's what he studied. Then he later went on to study art history and literature in Heidelberg. And that's where he also became an actor. Mm. And he became kind of like ensconced in this like scene of actors and artists. Things were like happening for good Friedrich. Unfortunately, then World War One happened. Oh. <laughs> and it kind of fucked everything up over there. Yeah. So he ended up joining the German military. I'm not sure. He might have been conscripted. Um, okay. But I, I did not double check that. He ended up being a company commander on the Eastern Front and then later joined the Imperial German Flying Corps. Uh, I wrote corpse, um, but it's not that. Whoops. The Flying Corps, where he flew missions in Northern France. And just so you know, the Imperial German Flying Corps, this is where like the Red Baron, you know. Yeah. Um, wow. like okay. the flying aces and stuff. So yeah. Friedrich ended up surviving eight different plane crashes uh, with no severe injuries. Wow. Which is insane to me. <laughs> Do you he, think after the eighth one, he was like, maybe I shouldn't maybe maybe I'm a plane anymore. Maybe I'm done with this. Maybe I'm, maybe maybe I'm not maybe I'm not that good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it me? Yeah. Is it me? Uh well he ended up uh he was forced into it. I mean, he was also I mean, I'm sure the plane crashes were because he was shot down a whole bunch of right, so, right. like to be fair to the guy. <laughs> Uh, he ended up being forced into an emergency landing in Switzerland, at which point he was arrested and put in a POW camp for the rest of the war. Wow. Mm. In the POW camp, he and the other prisoners formed a theater troupe and wrote a film. Oh my script. God, what a nerd. <laughs> yeah. I love him. Yeah. Oh my God. What a wonderful little theater nerd. It's also thought, but I don't think has ever been confirmed that he was gay. Okay. I'm going to get back to that here in a moment. Okay. Um, after the war, 
he returned to Germany and he started a film studio with another famous German actor slash filmmaker, a guy named Conrad Veit. Veit. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Okay. Conrad Veit is probably most famous for his role as the somnambulist Cesar in a movie called mm. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 19. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is very famously part of the German Expressionist movement. Okay. So, let's talk a little bit about German Expressionism. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, so, this was, like I said, this was the height of the German Expressionist movement, which was kind of from, like, I think the early 1910s towards, like, the end of the 1920s. It really started as, like, a movement in painting. So, this is from that Tate magazine or oh, Tate yeah. museum it says it was a german art movement that emphasized the artist's inner feelings or ideas over replicating reality and was characterized by simplified shapes bright colors and gestural marks or brushstrokes hmm. which sounds like kind of nice and lovely but that's not really what german expressionism was particularly in film right. uh, because so the film movement it ran kind of concurrently like I said, from like sort of the mid 1910s, it really developed as this very specifically German thing um, okay. for a couple reasons or a few reasons. One of which was this was during World War One. So Germany was very isolated from the rest of the Western world. There were bans outside of Germany on mm. German produced films. And there were bans inside Germany of like Hollywood films. So Germany was like, we need our own local film industry. Yeah. Yep. So they were like pumping money and support into like cranking out German films. And so it formed a very specifically German characteristic, okay. which I think was very informed by the war and the horrors of war. Yeah. Um, if you look at German expressionist films, they're very alienating. They're very dark. Um, yeah. I don't think of German expressionist films as being like warm. No. <laughs> and you're, yeah, they're all black and white, of course. Right. So there's a starkness to the image just from that. But then, you know, German Expressionist films are really known for these kind of fantastical plots that bordered on Gothic and horror. These very stylized, impossible sets, kind of going mm. to like this idea of the simplified shapes. If you look at a German Expressionist film, it's like these these sets that are very geometrical, but kind of impossibly shaped. And okay. a lot of forced perspective that creates this like real sense of unreality high angle camera placements, tilting, you know, canted camera angles, things like that, Mm -hmm. that you really weren't seeing in Hollywood at the time. All of these things became deeply influential on Hollywood after the war. You really see the influence somewhat in like the horror movies that came out after the war, like Uh some of the, the universal horror movies, like Dracula, but I would say you really see the German expressionist influence in movies like Frankenstein. Mm. Um, and then it was very deeply influential in film noir, which kind of developed in like the 1940s. Okay. You know, a, a lot of like deep shadows, what was called chiaroscuro lighting, like mm-hmm. deep shadows, columns of light, things like that. Mm-hmm. A German film critic named Lottie Eisner referred to it as, quote, a sort of twilight of the German soul expressing itself in shadowy, enigmatic interiors or in misty, insubstantial landscapes. So it's very, like, unreal. It's very, like, bordering bordering on surreal, disturbing, kind of, like, um, disorienting. And like I said, so it's kind of alienating. 
in a way. Yeah, yeah. So some of the most famous German expressionist films, aside from Nosferatu, were, like I said, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which might be the most famous German expressionist film. Also a movie called The Student of Prague from 1926, also done by Conrad Veidt. It was a adaptation of the story William Wilson by Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, yes, William Wilson. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I think the best German expressionist film is a sci-fi film from 1927 called Metropolis, which oh, was, yeah. Yeah, was directed by Fritz Lang. Okay, so Murnau, he was starting to make films right after the war, kind of in this context. His first film was a film called The Boy in Blue, which came out in 1919. He followed that up immediately with a film called, I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, Der Kopf. And I don't know what that means, but it's apparently had very similar themes as like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay. And then... Of course, in 1921, he started working on the film Nosferatu. So Nosferatu was kind of the brainchild of a guy named Albin Grau, who had formed a German studio called Prana Film. Albin Grau was very much like deeply into the occult, like Aleister Crowley and stuff like that. This is, I mean, if I ever do my episode on like the rise of the Nazis, Mm-hmm. One thing I'm really fascinated in is the idea of Nazi occultism mm. and how that really informed like how the Nazi movement rose because the occult was very much like of interest to Germans at the time. Mm. And so this Albin Grau, he started this company called Piranha Film, and the whole idea was to produce occult films, occult and supernatural films. Nosferatu was going to be its big flagship film and ended up being its only film (laughs) wow okay he wanted to uh this growl he wanted to shoot a vampire film based on his experience in world war one he was also had served in the war and while in the war, he claimed that he had encountered a serbian farmer who told him that his father was a vampire so this goes okay yeah so this goes back to that you know these eastern european villages you know yeah things like that so grau hired a guy named henrik galin who is also a world war one vet to write the screenplay and again back to the whole german expressionist thing like a lot of these filmmakers were veterans of the war they had Mm. suffered in the trenches you know so this just like very much became part of the german expressionist ethos So Henrik Galeen wrote the screenplay. It was very explicitly inspired by Dracula. Okay. Alvin Grau had actually gone to Florence Stoker and tried to get the rights to Dracula. And she was like, nope. And he was like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, we're good. (laughs) And then they went back to Germany and they're like, let's change some names, (laughs) change some locations, and no one will ever know. (laughs) Um. Okay. As we'll get to, not a great plan. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the Galeen, he wrote a, like a very impressionistic script, very kind of surreal impressionistic script. They then hired a famous German actor, a guy named Max Schreck, to play the vampire who was renamed at some point, we'll get to it, renamed Count Orlock okay. in the movie. Schreck was pretty well known in Germany at the time. He had appeared on stage at the Munich Kammerspiel, in particularly known for being in productions of work by Bertolt Brecht. Mm, um, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was known for playing the quote freak show landlord in Brecht's debut play called Drums in the Night. Um, okay, interesting. And then his first film was a film called The Mayor of Zalemia. And then mm-hmm. he followed that up with Nosferatu. Do you know the actor Doug Jones? He's an American actor. He's in a lot of Guillermo del Toro films, and he's really known for being like the is tall, he the dude skinny who's like guy 18 make, feet tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very is he thin. This guy? Yeah, in Pab's okay. Labyrinth. He's 
to me, it sounds like Max Shrek was like the 1920s version of Doug Jones because he was known for playing these kind of freakish characters. Um, he was also like very tall and thin and lanky and like yeah. used that. He was known to be very strange as a person. <laughs> like he was said to be a loner. He had, he was known to have like a really weird sense of humor and would just say really odd things. Like he would tell mm. people that he lived in quote, a remote and incorporeal world, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Chicks are probably like, yeah, cool. cool, cool. cool. (laughs) (laughs) So because of this persona, and I think he ended up not making a lot of films. Mm -hmm. Max Shrek has become this very like iconic, mysterious figure in like horror lore, because there were lots of rumors about him because people outside of Germany really didn't know who this guy was. So the rumors were like that he was an actual vampire. The FW. Right. You've ever seen the movie Shadow of the Vampire from, I think, 2000? Who was, plays him? Willem Dafoe, which is like that's, perfect casting. And then... Um, that's right. He's so weird. Right? That movie's so weird. <laughs> and uh, uh, John Malkovich plays Murnau. Yeah. But it's it's like the making of Nosferatu if Max Shrek was actually a vampire. It's, it's yes. a pretty... It's a fun... It's a fun movie. Another rumor about him was that Max Schreck didn't actually exist. And that another well-known German actor, a guy named Alfred Abel, was like acting in disguise and pretending to be this figure Max Schreck. None of that's okay. true. Max Schreck was a known actor in Germany. He was <laughs> real. Like, Guys, he, was a, he was a dude. You he heard was, it here. Kind of an oddball, but he was an actual dude. <laughs> okay. So after the screenplay was finished, Murnau took it and was like, this is pretty good. Um, I'm going to rewrite it thanks so he rewrote the script he added all the like interstitial text um so you know it's a silent film silent film so all the like text cards that come up that was all now uh he also added the end of the film where the main character's wife ellen sacrifices herself and then count orlock is killed by the sun this was something that was invented for the film by now interestingly this is the first depiction of a vampire being killed by the sun that's not part of vampire lore okay that's what i was gonna ask was that part of the lore and the was okay so they created this was sun kills the vampires created by Murnau. a lot of vampire stories like dracula would show the vampire being like weakened by the sun or made uncomfortable by the sun but it wouldn't kill them Mm. um it was Murnau who came up with the idea that no the sun will kill you and the famous shot at the end is like the curtains open you see count orlock like throw his head back and then he like vanishes they mostly shot it in germany in a little town called weisborg in northern germany the scenes that were set in transylvania were filmed in slovakia Mm. um and it's very much like the story of dracula but just really simplified okay like the abraham van helsing character is like taken out of the story okay all the secondary characters are pretty much removed and it's really about the john harker and mina harker characters renamed thomas and ellen hutter in this movie um thomas hutter goes to Transylvania to meet Count Orlock for a business deal, same as in Dracula. Guys, a, yeah. a little bit more. <laughs> they really didn't try very hard. because They then, just did a word search and yeah. they were like, replace John <laughs> Yeah. And then, of course, Count Orlock comes to Germany and has like fixated on Thomas's wife. It's very much, it's just, it's like the Cliff's Notes of the story right. of Dracula. Right. The character is very different. Okay. And this is going to get to what you were talking about, how everything boils down to white supremacy, anti-Semitism, etc. So the romanticism of Count Dracula was stripped away. Count Orlock. I mean, we've all seen the pictures of Nosferatu. You know, the image, the bald, yeah. kind of 
rodent face, the big ears, hook nose, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. Not only were the Germans at this time deeply into the occult, they were also deeply into hating Jews. Um, German expressionism is a very problematic movement because Mm -hmm. you see anti-Semitic characters pop up over and over and over again in these films now sometimes people have criticized movies for being anti-semitic and i think like the evidence is a little tenuous so like one example uh the character of dr caligari in the cabinet of dr caligari is often said to be like an anti-semitic trope i think that's like a little bit of a stretch in that film but then you have a movie like the golem which basically jews are created by satan they're trying to bring you know like it's it is like the jews are satanic and evil Um, I think Nosferatu falls somewhere in the middle. It's hard if you know the history of anti-Semitism and the way Jews were depicted and thought of in Europe at this time to not see the character as being an Eastern European foreign invader who brings a literal plague of rats with him. It's not just the hook-nose, rat-faced depiction of Orlok. Mm -hmm. If you look at how he's dressed, he's kind of dressed like an Orthodox Jew. Mm, I am not sure, though, how much this was intentional. Mm-hmm. F.W. Murnau, there's really no evidence that either he or Grau were like overtly anti-Semitic. Right. In fact, back to the idea that F.W. Murnau might have been gay. Uh-huh. It's been theorized, it's large or widely thought that kind of the love of his life was a fellow soldier who was killed in World War One, who was mm. uh, a German Jew. Mm. Um, I think of Nosferatu as anti-Semitic or as like trading in these tropes. I think it's because it was just kind of in the air. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, which like doesn't make it any better but in a way there is a there is a difference it almost makes it scarier to me when it's not intentional because it's like anti-semitism in germany at this time had been so normalized right 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 like they created this character of count orlock without even like consciously meaning necessarily to create yeah the evil jew but i mean like jews were seen as vermin count orlock brings a plague of rats right there's no like seduction it's he's seen more as like an infestation Mm. no yeah um he's grotesque and monstrous and if you look at german cartoons depictions of jews at the time they look like count orlock you know yeah so, like my feelings towards H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. I have very complicated feelings towards Nosferatu. Right. So, the film premiered on March 15th, 1922 at Berlin's Zoological Garden, which is interesting. Cool. It was a pretty big hit in Germany. Again, back to the, like, they didn't try very hard. Apparently, the intertitles still had the character referred to as Dracula. Okay. Really? Point. Guys. They needed to do a search and replace. Like, everyone's like, oh, such a tragedy how Nosferatu was suppressed. No, they they plagiarized this damn book, didn't get the rights, and didn't try to hide it at all. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't have a ton of sympathy for them. Right. The movie was, like, very praised in Germany by German critics. It wasn't seen, at this point, very widely outside of Germany. It was, you know, seen as, you know, the technical sophistication behind the film. You know, the use of in-camera special effects the production mm-hmm. design this kind of german expressionist production design which is in nosferatu a little more subtle than mm-hmm. in something like Do- cabinet of dr caligari which really just looks like painted you know like painted backdrops okay but it does if you watch nosferatu it does have that german expressionist undercurrent to yeah. it yeah so it was like i said it was a pretty big hit in germany they started showing it around europe and then florence stoker found out about it 
And Fawn Starkert was like, not fucking having it. Mm. So she turned around and immediately sued Prana Film in a British court, claiming copyright infringement. And like, fair. (laughs) Yeah, fair, fair. Fair. Sorry, guys, fair. (laughs) Sorry, but fair. Prana knew that they were going to lose the case. So they just declared bankruptcy because they didn't want to pay her any damages. And so that's why Prana Films released Nosferatu and died. Like that was it for Prana Films. Florence ultimately won the lawsuit in 1925. And the British court mandated that the negative and all prints of the film were to be destroyed. So they destroyed the negative and they tracked down as many prints as they could and like put them in a big bonfire. But the movie had been floating around, Uh particularly Europe at the time. And so there were like prints of the film available. So they were never able. This is why Nosferatu is not a lost film. Okay. It ended up actually being distributed in the U.S. Because if you remember, Bram Stoker fucked up the U.S. copyright. So yep. it's like U.S. courts were like, yeah, no, we're not hearing your lawsuit. Yeah. And it's in public domain here. So it got distributed by some like kind of shady film distributors. The versions of the film that were seen forever, it was like a copy of a copy of a copy of a oh, copy. Oh, wow. A lot of, they were re-edited. Big chunks were missing. When I was a kid, I remember this is in the 80s. When I first saw Nosferatu, I rented it from the video store and it was like this almost unwatchable copy. Wow. Like up into the 90s, it was like there was no definitive version of Nosferatu that you could Mm. find. It was like kind of considered almost a lost film, but the digital revolution kind of changed things. Okay. Uh, so like kind of into the 90s and getting into particularly the late 90s, various companies started doing these like digital restorations of Nosferatu. So they started putting out just increasingly more cleaned up versions over the years. The first like legitimate version of Nosferatu I think I ever saw was when I was in film school, probably around 2003. Wow. It was like when they first like released like an actual like this is like as close to Murnau's vision as we can get. The most recent was restored by a filmmaker named Mark Rance in 2018. It was screened before a small London audience at the Miskatonic Institute for Horror Studies, which I just have to say, the fact that there's a Miskatonic Institute for Horror Studies, like I didn't know that and I have to go there. Because if you know anything like Miskatonic Institute, that's very much like that's taken right from H.P. Lovecraft. So I'm just like, who are these fuckers? Like, that's I need, awesome. I need to go to Europe and just check out what this is. <laughs> that's how I felt when I was like, I could have trained to become like a dark tourist guide. Yeah. Like, what the hell? Yes. <laughs> Everybody needs to do a better job of letting us know what kind of jobs. Right. Because I want a degree. Like, I want a diploma from the Miskatonic <laughs> Institute for Horror Studies. Yeah. <laughs> have like online certifications i'm gonna you should 100 luck yeah i'll I'll, I'll update you guys next week awesome my progress (laughs) but so this only came out in 2018 here's what mark rance had to say about it he said the film had fallen into the cracks of history there were no single copies of the film left intact the version we were presented with this was just like four years ago yeah the version we were presented with to restore was reconstructed from many different sources so i would have to say the most important work was actually that reconstruction of the original film so he had to like go in and like stabilize the image there were a lot of Mm. errors made in like the optical printing process and then he was pulling from all these different prints some of which were 16 millimeter prints some of which were 35 millimeter. so he's having to like (sighs) wow ice you know because he's trying to make basically make a 35 millimeter master 
Right. Uh, because like these films would be like half of the film strip would be from a 35 millimeter and then it would be replaced by 16 millimeter. Like someone had then optically printed part of a 16 millimeter print onto the Right. Film. So it's just all like from scene to scene, you're getting different film stocks. So yeah. he's trying to like put it all back together. And I believe that film is available. Like that restoration, I haven't watched it, but I think that one is available to watch now. So very cool. If you do want to check it out, that's that's probably the version to see. The movie was also famously remade in Germany in 1979 by uh, one of my favorite directors, Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. Made the movie <laughs> yes. Nosferatu the Vampire, starring Klaus Kinski and Isabel Ajani. And I'm going to have to do an episode just about Werner Herzog at some point. Because like the dude is like one of the most batshit filmmakers yes. out there. Like His is- approach to filmmaking is literally just like go out into the jungle goals and like you know try not to die while you make this movie right is he the one who has the story about like the muppet or something and there that like was he carried around for forever and they were like what happened to him and he was like we don't talk anymore i think so. it's something weird like that that you're like like well and he lives he he, like he acted in the mandalorian so he's still out there he lives in hollywood now yes he did a remake of uh the movie bad lieutenant with nicholas cage uh, that came out uh, probably 10 years ago, which is like among the craziest, like just what the fuck is this movies I've ever seen. He's probably most famous to American audiences for a documentary, actually, uh, Grizzly Man. Um, he famously rescued Joaquin Phoenix from a car wreck in, in like on Laurel Canyon Boulevard or something. And there's, what? if you ever want to just go to YouTube and like just l- search Werner Herzog, Joaquin Phoenix, there's a little animation that someone did of what of Werner Herzog telling the story in his German accent, you know, and, and the animation is just the whole story oh of like God. finding Joaquin Phoenix upside down in a car trying to light a cigarette and Werner Herzog's like, uh, there's gas, like put that out. Yeah. And uh, it was clear I couldn't get him out through the window. And um, the moment um, I diverted uh, my attention from him, he had picked up somehow a cigarette and tried to light the cigarette. And I said to him, uh, man, relax. Yes. Anyway, so, but Werner Herzog did do a version of Nosferatu in 1979, which is pretty great. Like it's, it's actually, I don't love the FW Murnau version, like I said, for some of it complicated reasons, but also like there are very few silent films that I can really like fall in love with. Mm. But the Werner Herzog version is pretty great. And then, okay, so back to Murnau. Okay. So like I said, Prana Films just collapsed because of this lawsuit. Murnau did fine. He ended up following Nosferatu with a film, uh, The Last Laugh, in 1924. And then he ended up moving to Hollywood, and he made a film called Sunrise in 1927, which is considered one of the, like, masterpieces of cinema. Mm, um, okay. He ultimately was killed in 1931 when the car he was in, which was being driven by his 14-year-old assistant, which seems like a bad idea. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. They were going up the Pacific Coast Highway and they crashed into a utility pole outside of Santa Barbara. And Murnau was rushed to a hospital in Santa Barbara where he died the next day. And that is the story of Nosferatu, the most famous illegal film in history. Yay! <laughs> what a wild ride. Yeah. I do, like, I think before reading this story and realizing how little they tried to hide the fact that they just stole Dracula, <laughs> I probably had a little more sympathy for them. But as I was doing the research, I'm like, oh my God, go fuck yourself, guys. Yeah, like, guys, I mean, like, try a little just try <laughs> a little yeah. yeah that's very like blah 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 intellectual property wah, wah, wah. whatever like, <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's a cool story. The whole idea of lost films is also like a very interesting topic to me. Mm, yeah, we talked a little bit about it, like when I talked about freaks and stuff. And, right. And, and like, there are some movies like uh, there's a famous, I think Lon Chaney's in it, London After Midnight, which is one of those movies that I've like everyone wants to see. Um, right. But there's only like a few film stills that exist. <sighs> Wow. Yeah. That, I, that's, I mean, anything that's like lost is, is interesting to me. Very cool. Very, very cool. And like, we're so close to Nosferatu being a lost film. It's just her lawsuit took a little too long. And so the prints have gotten out. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. That's like Nick a time type of stuff. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Awesome. Well done. So uh, we'll return in a couple weeks with Mm -hmm. our final update on yellow jackets for the season. My God, you guys pray for us. Yeah. Um, We might, we might just be like a little too traumatized after that. We'll have to see. I'm so excited. Uh, Scotty and I, you know, watched the, like I said, the penultimate episode last night and I came down, I don't know where, I don't know exactly where Scotty is, but I came down firmly on the thing of going into the final episode of the season. I have more questions than answers. Yeah, absolutely. Like we were talking last night, uh, like we've had, I think two or three things answered and like a hundred questions have popped up throughout the season. And even the things that are answered were like, I think that was answered. But, yeah. You know. And well, and it's like, I, this is answered, but in terms of like what this means in the greater scope of things mm-hmm. is still very unclear. Yeah. So, yeah. So after next week, or I mean, I guess, you know, starting like Tuesday or so you can get your seven day, depending mm-hmm. on what kind of binge you're looking yeah. for, you can should, get your free trial. Like a very special spoiler episode of you and me just like geeking out <laughs> about <laughs> yellow jackets. Like it won't be a regular episode. It'll be like a little, like, like a bonus mini-sode kind of thing. <laughs> I think, I think a bonus, uh, I think a bonus-sode would not be a bad a idea. A bonus-sode uh, would not be a bad idea. I think if, I think if we were to do that as our main episode, it'll be our lowest rated <laughs> Absolutely. episode. Oh, guys, also, um, if you listen to us on Spotify, you can rate us now Yeah, on Spotify. You have to have listened to, I think, at least 30 seconds of an episode on the Spotify platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to like the main show page, you can rate us. I think we still have very, very few. I'm looking it up right now. Very few ratings. And this kind of stuff is like, you know, helps us get seen and helps us get yeah. heard. And yeah, so just take a um, couple seconds and go do it. Yeah. For fuck's sake, it's like three seconds. <laughs> Come on, guys. Um, well, actually, <laughs> 33 seconds, technically. <laughs> this is true, yes. Because yeah. if you haven't listened to us on there, you have to listen to us for a moment. Um, and yeah, go ahead and do that. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, I didn't mean to yell at you guys. Um, I love you all. Uh, and on that note, stay weird, stay curious. We'll see you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.